even start I just, I just want to know where both of you are from um I'm from New York City which is where I'm at right now actually okay that was the next question <laughs> and Sasha where are you from I'm from Boston and but I'm in Connecticut right now that was my question <laughs> do you have anything before we get started You know, and, and I do actually want to ask, um, and for the fun of it, because we're here, um, how, how do both of you identify and why did you choose this as your subject? Um, I use she, her pronouns. I, you know, I've seen, I go on social media often. Um, I have other LGBTQ friends. Um, and so we've talked a lot about how the pandemic has, you know, um, affected our, you know, I guess, insight into our identity. Um, and so I was just hoping to get kind of a wider glance at that. Beautiful. Yeah. Uh, and I use she, her. So, and I um, also like learned a lot about, you know, myself, my identity, my orientation um, around when COVID happened. And, you know, we're all, you know, 16, 17, 18, like figuring out who we are, who we like, and with social media, because we spend so much time alone, we all kind of connected to each other. And there was so, it was so crazy seeing like how many similar stories there were, there were on the internet, like mostly on TikTok and Instagram and uh, YouTube. I'm sure you guys know something about that. Um, so we thought it would be super cool to like um, see other like opinions, see what you guys, like if you guys have seen anything, um yeah beautiful awesome so Naya do you want to add anything before we get started um I mean I use they them pronouns and uh, very similar to, uh to what you both said like I, I mean I I like kind of knew before that but like I guess I admitted it to myself during quarantine uh, how do you guys know each other? Um, my dad has known Kimura since they were kids. And so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Justin, Naya's father and I, um, and this will give you a little bit of insight into what we do and why, why we do it. We were, I was born, we were, I was born in 71. Your dad was born in 73, right? Or 72? Yeah. 72. Um, but we were born, you know, so the civil rights movement had happened, the summer of 69 had happened, and you had all of these folks in their 20s who knew that they were going to change the world. So Blue Hills is a neighborhood here in Hartford, and as you do your local history, you know, Blue, Blue Hills will probably come up, um, but there was something called model communities, and that was where very intentionally Black families and white families chose to buy houses in the same neighborhood with this idea that they were going to intentionally practice integration. Um, so we were raised together. The 80s came with all the issues and problems that the 80s had. So we all kind of ran for the hills. Some families stayed in Blue Hills. Um, some families moved to the west end of Hartford. My family moved out to Summers, Connecticut, which is an out there rural community. Justin's family ended up moving up to Maine. Um, but we were raised, our foundational years was, were these 
our families knew that we had to, if we're going to change the world, we had to intentionally live our lives um, in ways that forced us to live with difference. And now we're adults and I do this. Justin does adventure ed, but the same type of experiential type of thing. And for the last, well, for the last year since pandemic, he and I have been training and working together. So then his kid is just awesome. And it feels really good to work. We are three generations into doing this right now. Actually four, because your grandparents were kind of hippie-ish. Ish. That's really cool. You mentioned that um, you were raised with the service <clears throat> that you would, you know, change the world. Um, so growing up, what is it that you, you know, wanted to do? A lot. Um, but honestly, my mother's white, my father's black, and black people get it wrong and white folks get it wrong. Um, and so one of the things, and, and when you look at the work that I do right now, really what I think I'm here to do is to help people develop a new lens and a new perspective. Um, so when we were doing a little research about you, we found um, that you used to work for True Colors, the organization in Hartford. Um, can you talk a little bit a little bit about um, what was your role over at True Colors? <clears throat> um, so I was first hired to run the mentoring program for queer youth and out of home care. Um, and that was, that's incredibly important work. Um, so it was one of, at the time, it was one of 14 mentoring programs in the state of Connecticut for youth and out of home care. So foster youth, youth who, youth who for whatever reason, I like to say their parents or the state of Connecticut has deemed their parents unfit. Whatever that is, that's happened. They've been removed from their homes. <clears throat> so we've got that first layer of stigma on top of us. Um, and then they come out, they are who they are. They're queer, they're questioning, they're trans. I can tell you, if you're a kid in foster care and you come out to people, you're probably not questioning. You are who you are. And the scariest piece is sharing with strangers who you are. Um, and then just because of demographics on, on DCF stats, the majority of these kids were black and brown. So we've got that going against us. <clears throat> and many of the folks who are there charged to care for them are coming from, from religious backgrounds. You know, so, so how do many people step into social work? How do many families step into foster parenting? You know, many churches actually do foster parent training and such. So you have this very vulnerable population that doesn't have a soul around them that identifies with them, cares about them, or loves them. Um, and so the True Colors program took adult queer folks from the community and matched them through a volunteer mentoring program, matched them with queer youth. Um, and that went through a whole bunch of evolutions. I'm loving where we are as a community right now because when I came in, and, and I think, have, have both of you ever heard the term white feminism? Mm -hmm. No. Okay. Essence, can you share just a little bit about what that is? Um, I guess I know it more in the sense of the term like womanism and why womanism was um, created, like kind of how feminism on like a wider scale focuses, doesn't focus a lot on intersectionality. Um, and so therefore it is, you know, mostly catered to white women um, and doesn't, you know, highlight any of the problems that um, trans women or women of color or trans women of color go through. <clears throat> mm -hmm. So 
True Colors was founded in the early 90s at about the same time as this entire nation was having a queer youth aha moment. So GSAs were starting to be, this idea of a GSA of some type of a gay student club was coming up. Organizations like True Colors, so there's NIAC in DC, there's SMILE, there are all of these different organizations throughout the country that were starting. Um, and a few of them were black and brown, the majority of them were white. And as you look at where we are as a nation today and look over the history of the, of the queer movement of, of the gay, gay and lesbian, gay, lesbian, bi, LGBT as we've moved on. But as you look over the history of that movement, it was very, very wide appearing. So many of these youth agencies and, and the adult organizations ended up in the same place um, where LGBT, LGB identities were affirmed and supported. T identities, many of, many of these mainstream gay organizations were iffy there. Um, but racism was being practiced. There was this idea that gay and queer was a white thing and black and brown queer kids were coming from very, very, very homophobic backgrounds. So it was a job of the queer community to shield them from that. Um, and so a lot of the work with the mentoring program, if you look at what I do now and how I do it, a lot of this work came from realizing that within this marginalized group, you had enough difference and, and just enough isms going on that it could be detri detrimental to us to interact without an understanding of who we are and what we're bringing to the table. Before I ask, um, I guess my main question, I'm just curious, um, both in True Colors and with uh, your own organization now, do you work with kids of like all ages or is it mostly older kids? We work with everyone. We got a little bit of everyone. Um, one thing that's fun is a bunch of my 30 year olds are people who I met as young as teenagers. And I have a couple teenagers coming around now who I've known since since they were very young. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm loving the fact that we've got these little trans kids coming out at four and five and people are like, okay, gotcha. And they don't have to have that second coming out. So in the evolution of my work, we used to talk about trans kids coming out twice. And that first time was somewhere between three and five. And when we, when we went back and remembered, they told people who they were, they showed up as the, who they were, they did what they were supposed to do. We refused to see it, we fixed them. And we got them to acknowledge that they were the sex and gender that, that we see. And then the second coming out would come out, would happen sometime around adolescence. So sometime around like say 12 to 15. Today for many, not, not everyone because it, it is what it is, but for many families that first coming out is the only coming out that the gender variant and trans kid has to have. And that's a huge shift in like the last 20 years. Um, Nye, if you want to, you want to talk a little bit about how you, um, I guess we're coming to terms with your own identity within the past year. You mentioned that you knew a little bit before, um, but within the past years when you really, I guess, uh, knew it, like, for sure. <laughs> um, yeah, so as you, like, both were saying, I think a lot of, like, being able to spend time, like, by myself and with myself this past year has, like, definitely um like given space for me to recognize who I am um the order in which I <laughs> came to terms with who I was was first I um 
I came out to myself, I guess, as pansexual. Um, and then I did, and that was before the pandemic. And um, then there was a lot of the 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 attraction to men was not was not real. Um, I recognized um, over over the pandemic. Um, and I think with coming to terms that I am a lesbian, because so much of womanhood is based around attraction to men, I also came to terms with the fact that I do not connect to, to, to womanhood and that I am non-binary. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how I came to that. Um, and Kimora, uh, my, the reasoning for asking about if you work with kids of all ages or like what's like kind of the age range in your work, because I'm curious, um, again, our project is focusing on like LGBTQ youth, but also how they, you know, exist in other spaces and how they deal with, you know, things that are just going on in the world. Um, so I'm just curious um, how the people you've worked with, how you, I guess, like have conversations about, um, you know, the 2020 election and, um, you know, Black Lives Matter with George Floyd and like the rise in, um, I guess, like attention to police brutality. Mm -hmm. um, we, after, so right after the world shut down, we figured out and adjusted fairly quickly on how to go online and have been able to maintain contact with some fo with folks that way. Um, at about the same time, True Colors, True Colors shut down and the mentoring program shut down. So, so there is a whole group of folks. Let's, before we talk about how wonderful technology is, let's acknowledge that there's a whole group of kids and those kids who are in out-of-home care that we discussed that don't have access to this amazing resource right here that works. And when, um, when social media took off, so let's go back to MySpace, many queer youth found a community where they could be who they were, right? And a place where even if, if their communities of origin, if their families were gonna be not accepting, there was a place that they could go online, they could find a chat room at that time, they could find some type of an affinity group where they could start talking about who they thought they could be and playing with it. And I think that's one of the most important things when we think about identity development. Um, and it's strange when we look at queer kids and we look at them trying on different identities and trying on different ways of being that identity, we assign very often some type of mental health thing to that when as kids are deciding, you know, I like this kind of music, I like this kind of music, I like to dress like this, I like to dress like that, we're not doing the same thing there. Um, and so folks are able to find themselves here. Over the last year of the pandemic, like Naya said, there's been a lot of folks who figured out, because of all the different YouTube folks, because of all of these different people who are staring at screens and talking about who they are and what that is, people are able to interact with that. And actually, yeah, I remember I used to, when I would do trainings for True Colors, um, people would want to know, so tell us about the gay youth, you know, so what do they do? What are they interested in? It's like, you gotta be fucking kidding me, really? Like, I'm going to stand here and I'll tell you exactly what a lesbian kid, a bi kid is like, like that's gonna happen. So I would say, just decide whatever question it is that you've got, go to YouTube, type it in, you know, whatever word you've heard for an identity that you don't understand, whatever it is, type it into the box and somewhere there's someone who felt the need to stare at a screen and discuss who they were. And over the last year of the pandemic, I think that's happened a lot more and folks are connecting a lot more because they can't connect outside. Um, and this, this has been an incredibly valuable medium for a lot of folks. 
and uh, hooking up and grinder have have taken off in some really interesting ways over the last year and this is a place where I, I do this right and I, and I will play adultism and I will say there are times when I feel like I need to jump in and say you know stop it like I understand the need to connect I completely get it and I have no clue if I was a 17 year old gay boy in 2021 and the old lady who's already lived her life said stay off of grinder so that you live like I'm not sure how I would listen to it um but I've I've had some really interesting conversations with folks about what hooking up in the age of COVID looks like. Um, and there's a place where I wish there were more of those conversations and I wish that there are more intergenerational conversations because my, my generation doesn't know how to have that conversation without throwing AIDS and HIV on top of it. And I think that we've got two very, you know, similar in some ways, but very different pandemics affecting us. And, and one right now is we're queer, we're still marginalized, but we're not as ghettoized as we were in the 80s and 90s. Do you mind talking more about um, some of the stories you've heard about what it's like to, you know, uh, find connections during the... <laughs> Look at you using nice language to uh, find connections. Yes. <laughs> um, I, right, right now I'm thinking of like all of the conversations that we've had that have just been kind of funny. Um, where like I remember a, a young woman on our team, Versatile, was talking about like she met someone and she was discussing like, you know, whether they were going to go out or do whatever. And like, where did you meet someone? Like, where are you? What are you doing? Like, we're here on Zoom talking. We're all supposed to be on Zoom and somehow you're still out there in the world meeting people. Um, and Versatile is just going to meet girls and pick girls up and that's what she's going to do. Um, and, and it's gonna be, but yeah, <laughs> much, much larger conversation. Um, but there's that navigation, but I think that as queer folks, honestly, there's an expectation that when we discuss what our dating life is going to look like, what our relationships are going to look like, there's a lot more conversation around navigation than in heterosexual relationships. Um, especially thinking about folks who are deciding if they're gonna get into a uh, relationship with someone who's closeted you know, so what does that look like? And a lot of the conversations over the last year have been a lot of negotiations that just have have a couple extra components added. How there, would you I, I was just gonna say there has been um, what seemed like a bunch of folks going back and dating exes because for whatever reason they figure like since I dated you before you're safe and that's way safer than going out and meeting a new person because that, that has come up in some of the conversations is like just go back where you've been and hopefully everyone's healthy. Yeah. How, did you, how would you say your organization has helped create a like safe space for members of the LGBTQ plus community? Well, we're queer as the day is long and that's just what it is, so deal. <laughs> um, gay folks are right. Like, um, have you seen our signs, our lawn signs, black people are fabulous? I think so. Okay, so this morning, so Ephraim Adams, who is our DJ and videographer and all this other wonderful great stuff. Um, and as you're looking at gay stuff around Connecticut and definitely black queer stuff, you're gonna see him. Um, but this morning we were talking about some video footage that he's getting ready to put together for us. And I was saying, you know, like it's got to be over the top and like this. So 
there's Black Lives Matter and that's cute. And, and if, if we, we talked about identification, I don't know how you identify as queer, straight, bi, whatever. Um, so not trying to be offensive, but cishet folks are cool, but they really do not have the flavor, the color, all the extra that we as queer folks bring to the world because of course, right? Like that's who we are. So Black Lives Matter on black and white makes a lot of sense for straight people. Got it, makes sense. Black people are fabulous is us. Of course we're fabulous and the signs are purple with orange. And it's just like, that's who we are. We're over the top, we're fabulous. Straight people really need to come and hang out with us and listen to us. So it's interesting that polyamory is doing what it is right now, but 20 years ago when queer people didn't know how incredibly amazing we were, we were trying to pretend we we're trying to pretend like we were like straight folks and we wanted to get married and stuck in those awful heterosexual marriages that don't sound like any fun for friggin' anyone. Queer people have never had relationships like that. Like when we were really cloistered off, when it was clear that we had to be something outside of the mainstream, we created our own worlds, right? And so we did these interesting commitment ceremonies with each other. Gay men and the way, and gay men and lesbians are different, right? And bi folks are different and trans folks are different. Like we are not this, you can put all the letters together, but whatever, right? Um, and the way that our men have chosen to have their relationships, the heterosexual world could learn so much. As I was saying, you know, talking about these, not a monolith at all, but talking about these negotiations and such, if straight heterosexual folks spent anywhere near as much time just figuring out how to be themselves in a way that works for them, rather than figuring out how to be traditional in those ways, life would be a lot better. Um, so the way that we create space for queer people is we just make it clear that we are queer and we are right and other people are invited to step into this with us. And we keep it about as unapologetic as that. I think there are times when I'm more overt, but we are overtly black, queer, Afrocentric, at all times. Yeah, you just hearing you talk, you're very, you know, inspiring and positive. Um, <laughs> do you ever find it? And so because of that, I'm sure um, the spaces you host also, you know, have the same openness um, and welcoming feeling to them. So I'm just curious if ever, you know, in these whatever virtual or in person events or meetings that you hold, is it ever you know, hard to kind of keep everybody, you know, positive in a year that has been nothing but, you know, bad thing on the bad thing. Yeah. Um, if I were trying to keep people positive, it would probably be hard to keep people positive, but we're not trying to keep people positive. We're trying to, um, we're trying to create spaces where people are allowed to be exactly who they need to be. And if you need to fall apart, you need to fall apart. If you need to cry, you need to cry. If you need to cuss people out, cuss folks out. So um, after the January 6th insurrection, we had, and, and I'm a black woman who does the work that I do. And there are many black women in our community who, and, and women, because of what I do, I know many other black women who do this work. So we were all getting phone calls and people were wanting us to care. Like it was, that was a really hard week. And you know, if you've ever you know, listened to black women, you got folks who I've been saying this for years. We are now here and now white folks want to listen and talk about this. What are we going to do? So our community conversation the week after that was a listening session. And I invited black women to come on and talk about whatever it is that they wanted to talk about and invited absolutely everyone else in the community to come on and listen. And 
emotions and raw emotions were shared. And, you know, of course, laughter happened because it's a two hour conversation and such. Um, but it was a safe space for people to come and be and share with the understanding that them being themselves vulnerable or vulnerably was going to heal them, provide solace for them, but then also heal and provide solace for other folks. Because when we're like, I believe that the glass is half empty because if the glass is half full, we're walking around, we're laughing, we're smiling at each other. This is half full, it's half full. And then it's empty and no one knows what the fuck to do. Um, and if I'm looking at it and saying it's half empty, then cool, there's still water in there, but let's go get some more water. Let's make sure to replenish the glass. Let's make sure that it's always full. So if you've ever heard anything, you know, that toxic positivity, yeah. we're not trying to keep everyone happy. We're trying to keep, a, create space. Like this last year has been traumatizing. And again, for us as queer people, like how do we create spaces where we can talk? Let's talk about AIDS, I got it, because I understand everyone right now hears the word pandemic and that's where our mind goes. Like, let's have the conversation and discuss what, discuss what we know is not cool and polite to talk about because we need to talk about it. Nayo, do you have anything to add about how we create space and build space? Um, I mean, it's kind of hard to explain it because I feel like you like it's really easy to like talk about how great it is but you don't know until you're there and so I encourage you both to come to like I mean I know you're in New York City right Essence yeah. so we do have like the virtual community conversations every week um, and you should come to it like see for yourself like I think that that would inform you a lot more than anything like I can say about it um, and yeah, I mean, I don't know how much boarding schools allow you to like leave places. I, I don't, I don't know about any of that, but, um, we do have our queer youth panel this, this, um, weekend and it, it's going to be recorded, right? Come on. Yeah. So if you're not able to come in person, we can also, um, give that to you. And that might also provide some insight on your project, but it's kind of hard to explain like I feel like the space that Kimura creates is, is very difficult to explain because it it's another level of like connection with others so yeah yeah I like to say that we have um we have language in this country that we use that doesn't always explain what 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 we're trying to explain. So it, when I say community garden you've got an idea of what it is but that's not what it is. Um, it's a healing space and like it, but that's it's different. So yesterday morning, you know, so we've just built the labyrinth. We're still working on it. Um, and yesterday morning, my day started with first sister and Yago showed up and sister and Yago is in her mid fifties. She teaches African dance. She, she does stuff from an, um, and Zumba and such, but she's got this Afrocentric healing practice going. Um, and so she was by about eight 30 in the morning. And then about nine 30, this woman, Catherine came by and Catherine is a retired executive from Aetna, um, older white woman who, she, she used to live very close, now she lives down in East Haven. COVID has her scared to death. So yes, it was the first time that we've seen her in real life in a year. Um, and then the two of them who've only seen each other on Zoom chat conversations, sat and had the conversation of, you know, we're older women and just beautiful conversation, it was wonderful. And then Naya, did you guys get there while they were still there or Catherine was still there, right? It was just Catherine. So then, yeah, so like just beautiful, different human beings from all different walks of life come through 
and connect and, and look for those beautiful places of real connection and enjoy exploring the difference. Um, and that's what we work at. And when we talk about language, I love that everyone will discuss race using all of the words that they, they know. So Catherine has no problem discussing herself as a white woman. And so she, like white, black, all of the words are used all the time because that's who we are, what, that's what we bring to the space. Um, and one thing that I've created in my space is everyone knows I'm not down with people of color, women of color or BIPOC anything. Um, so those words are never used in our space. Can you talk a little bit more about what your, I guess, day-to-day -day life is like in the program? <laughs> <laughs> my day-to-day -day life. Um, let's see, I wake up and scroll through Facebook and let's see, day-to-day um, -day life right now is beautiful and fascinating and frustrating. Um, and I'm, I'm where I want to be and and I get to connect with lots of folks. So I get to connect with queer youth and queer adults and, and adults of all walks of life in every capacity. So let me just see, what have I done so far today? Um, started my day with a consultation with a mother, um, was then supposed to have, um, who's got some stuff going on with her grown kids, but with her kids. I was supposed to then talk to Sarah Raskin, who is the head of um, neuroscience up over at Trinity, because I've got a program that's starting next week with some Trinity students. And, and so, so the program that I'm doing with Trinity students is with another department in Trinity. That's with the Office of Community Engagement. And this is like the summer program for, for students who are there. Um, but Sarah, an issue that she's having is she's got to send her Trinity students out to different areas of Hartford and Trinity students are Trinity students and Hartford is Hartford. So you've got kids or students who are scared of Hartford who come back and say, oh my God, it's the ghetto. Let me tell you about the ghetto. And she needs a way to like figure out how to explain this. So I'm doing a project with a group of Trinity kids, a group of pu public allies that come from an AmeriCorps program um, and a group of Hartford youth. And I'm putting that together. So she and I still need to connect at some point before the day is over today so that I can get what I need from her to put the curriculum together for, for tomorrow, for next week. Um, and then there's an organization. So I do the cultural humility trainings. There's an organization that just hired us. Um, they came on as a partner. So they're going to do a training, um, a full day training. So I had to talk to the person who hired us, the person who engaged with us there to plan the first training and Yo-Yo. Yo-Yo is one of our healing artists. Yo-Yo is in that training because we're, that group is gonna, um, along with the cultural humility training, they're gonna have the Black Art Heals healing artists doing the live painting along. So yeah, that meeting. Um, talked to some folks who came to visit the land today about volunteering. So I'm gonna be setting up that volunteer piece. After this meeting, I'm on a scholarship board. So Pride in the Hills is an organization out in the Litchfield Hills that supports queer youth, you know, does all that great stuff, um, works with a bunch of philanthropists. So the money has all been raised and now we get to figure out which students get the scholarships and, and what the breakdown's gonna be. So I've got that meeting at four. I've got something at five. Five o'clock is, no, I don't. Um, and then at seven o'clock tonight, so nothing at five. But then at seven, um, I've got a charter reform, a charter revision meeting. Um, and do you know anything about city charters? 
Okay, so every municipality has what their own laws and bylaws are. So, you know, so there's city laws, state laws, federal laws. The charter um, in Hartford, just the way it's set up here, and, and different municipalities have it set up different ways. But Hartford, every 10 years, we can change, revise the charter. And, but that has to come up for votes. So every 10 years, there's a vote that comes up. And if, if people decide that they want to do charter reform, a group is put together and then they spend the next two years hammering out all of the laws that possibly affect residents and people doing business in the city of Hartford. And boom, then we revise it. That goes out for vote. And then we do this. So I'm on the Charter Revision um, Commission. So tonight is our first meeting with public commentary. So that's how I'm ending my day. And the way I'm doing public commentary. Hell, yes, you are. Uh, but so this is where the fun part comes in, right? And and so yes, yeah, so my intern, who is also a city of Hartford resident and a young person, and let's not miss the fact that they are white as well. And as we do our work, it's like there's certain things that make differences, right? Um, and civic engagement is incredibly important. We have a weekly community conversation every Wednesday night, and during those conversations, we're going to be talking about issues um, affect that are that can be affected by the charter, specific laws that we wanna do, um, explaining how the process works, but I'll be able to use my regular Wednesday night community conversation to create an open online forum for the community to hear what's happening with this charter commission. Um, I don't like playing politics. We are a small mid-sized capital city in Connecticut. Our politics are some funky politics and the process is not as transparent as it should be. So this evening's meeting, there's public commentary and, and the hurdles that folks have to go to, through for public commentary really are unnecessary. But I have an open weekly forum where all of these issues can be discussed. So as I'm looking at what I think are issues in the community, what are issues in the community? People who live in the community don't know what's happening. I've created a place where people can know what's happening. Um, I've spent a good deal of my life yelling at City Hall, telling City Hall what they need to do. City Hall's not gonna do it, so I'm gonna do it. Um, a few years ago, we came up with the group, you know, Hartford Police Department, not safe for women because there needed to be a way to get the information out. You live a very busy life. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> so you work with, oh, you were talking about like your, sorry. Hmm? Um, do you wanna go, do you wanna go with some? Yeah, I was just going to say, since you work with um, so many people, I read your uh, your article in the Hartford Current about working um, with Monica Roberts. So I was just curious um, how the July conference for the with the um, tran for transgender activist was it um, went. <laughs> Um, when are you talking about? So are you talking about last year when we had, when I had Monica and some other folks do a community conversation or are you going back years? Last year, 2020? 2020. Um, okay. So Monica passed in October and I am so happy that I was able to have her on one of my community conversations over the summer. She, you know, she's come in, she's bopped in on some stuff. Do you know who Monica is? Um, I know a little bit, but not too Yeah, that woman is badass. And when you read about her now, please put on like 1990, 2000 eyes and understand that a big old loud black trans woman 
screaming about the needs and rights of trans women and especially in LG. So remember that, that there was an LG and then an LGB community that really didn't accept our trans brothers and sisters as we should have, right? Um, and Monica has been out there standing on the front lines since day one. Her old blog, Transgrio, was amazing. Um, and really, again, a completely different lens, looked at queer issues from a different perspective than the majority of queer, you know, of, of mainstream queer and even black mainstream queer um, organizations, publications, views were. Um, and, and actually I met Monica in 2005 when I was working at True Colors, because again, when we talk about how that whole racism thing comes in, black trans youth, white trans youth, youth and out of home care, the whole thing is ridiculously different and looking for resources for my black trans youth, combing absolutely every outlet that I knew, couldn't find anything, fell into trans group. And I think at that point it was like a Yahoo chat group, right? So found her and just sent her an email saying, hey, help, this is who I'm working with. I don't get it. I don't know what's happening. I don't, I don't know how to, I'm supposed, I'm supposed to advocate for this person and I don't know what I should be advocating for. So, and gave my, put my phone number in, hit send and my phone rang and a cranky, angry trans woman called me and grilled me for a long time and decided that I was someone who she could possibly work with. And, and that was how our relationship started. And um, yeah, like we, what, during the Obama presidency, it was wonderful because they had their queer offense. And so we were there with the NBJC and they were, they were tossing out crumbs and they're doing some great stuff for adult black gay people who, you know, had graduated, like everything they were doing that was supporting the black gay community was leaving out the marginalized of the marginalized. And she taught me how to be in the White House and demand that they give you even more respect than just inviting you to the table. So the entire world, the entire queer world, everyone on God's green earth needs to know what Monica Roberts has to offer and had to offer. So we pulled in again, it was this place where a whole lot of gay folks were talking about trans people, like they knew what they were talking about and cishet people were listening to them because LGBT, it must all be the same thing, right? And so that was bringing in black trans folks to talk about themselves from their perspective and what their needs were, leaving the rest of us out of the conversation because there are times we need to shut up and listen. And again, like as, as someone who is often called to represent black trans folks, it's like, dude, I can do it, but really? Like, we've got some powerhouses who've been doing this for a really long time. And honestly, that's a part of why Naya is here right now. Like, yeah, I can talk about queer youth forever, but dude, I got one in my back pocket right here. They're kind of competent. Sasha, I know you had uh, a question to ask. Yeah. Okay. So um, you were talking about your daily life now. What were, so besides, you know, going online, were there any like irregular ways that you had to change programs or were there any ways that you changed topics or just things that were pretty surprising? Like, of course you have to go online and maybe you'll talk about the pandemic, but things that just kind of were unexpected. The depth of- With uh, um, programs or daily, right thing. 
well, in, in changing my programs a little bit, so figuring technology out, yeah, huge. But I've always considered technology and, and this way of interacting with people to be somewhat of a barrier. Um, so always seeing online gaming as a wonderful thing for trans and gender variant youth as a way to try on different ways of being. Always knowing that 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 as long as as long as as long as we're we're in some cool places, there are wonderful places for folks to meet and connect online. But I also saw this as a barrier to actual face-to-face -face real connections. And in the trainings that I do, I need people to get vulnerable and I need people to share who they are. And you know, I enjoy like those nonverbal cues. I enjoy making eye contact with people. I enjoy when the conversations are happening in small groups, walking around and touching someone on the shoulder, moving in. Like I enjoy real connections. And when this happened, I thought that we were going to lose a level of intimacy. And I think A, because of the pandemic, because people are at home dwelling inward more and then looking for connection, there is more connection this way. But I also think that somehow this artificial barrier creates a, a way for people to be more vulnerable. Um, I think part of it's also us being in our own homes often, because you know many of these trainings I've done have been in gymnasiums and conference centers, you know, in, in boardrooms, but in settings that are not people's very intimate setting. Um, and I think there's a difference that if you're, when you're sitting in your own personal living room, and you know, you can look over and see the picture of your mother. So, okay, that's where we are. Um, but I found that to be different. And I lost people. So as I was saying earlier, um, a bunch of a bunch of kids who are able to come to stuff. So True Colors shutting down added to that. That definitely added to it. They shut down. They didn't do any connections between. They didn't reach out to mentors. They didn't reach out to youth. So there were mentors who the program shut down and literally had no way to get in touch with their young people. Um, and that happened and that is still happening. Yeah, we definitely, you know, talk about in in our own, I guess, school environments, how uh, being online has, you know, opened a lot of doors for a lot of people to be, you know, more open than they would have been in an in-person setting, but, you know, also does have its downfalls, like you were saying, just, you know, that that kind of physical aspect of just being in person, of being able to, you know, tap someone's shoulder or, you know, look them, you know, right in the eye. Um, so that's definitely, I guess, comforting to hear that other people also, you know, experience the same kind of ups and downs with being virtual. Um, and I know you have another meeting at four, um, <laughs> but before we close out, I was just, so if you thinking back on the last year and about, you know, kind of the future of our community, um, what would you say is the most helpful, I guess, advice or lesson that you've learned in the last year? Or what kind of advice would you give having, you know, lived, just lived through it? Naya, also feel free to input. Sorry, my mom was texting me, so I didn't really hear what the question was. <laughs> I was just wondering, um, you know, thinking back on the past year and everything you've experienced, what's the most helpful advice you've received? Or if you can't think of any advice you've received, what's advice that you would give? <laughs> I 
distancing aside from wash your mask <laughs> and okay apply the lessons of the metaphor as i think a whole lot of what happened over the last year we had i can't breathe everywhere you know we had george floyd we had the pandemic america was forced to to slow down and think about breathing um and thinking about coming from our selfish place we've got this labyrinth we've got this idea that just slow down and breathe and think biggest lesson is like slow down um i guess mine would be like resisting the urge to like isolate yourself even like there's always a way or i mean there isn't always a way but there's usually a way that you can make connections with people, even if you're quarantining from a deadly virus. Um, there's always ways that you can, you know, find find something good about your day or create something good. Um, so, yeah. 